believe it or not, I have never been to a waifu. So, yeah, I mean, these venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, they just take 15 grand. And for them, that's, you know, that's in the ashtray of their Maybach. And they go and rent Kelly Slater's thing for a day. So I don't have 15 grand in my ashtrays. <laughs> John, we'll have to fix that. Yeah, now it's 50 to 65 for the day. It's 65 grand a day? Between 50 and 65, depending on what time of the year. Are you kidding me? Caught my first tube this morning. Sir. Welcome to Beyond the Ocean, the podcast exploring surf parks and the impact of technology on the future of surfing. We speak with technology leaders, investors, operators, and surfing legends to explore this exciting new movement. I'm your host, Chris Kluzner. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris, and welcome to Beyond the Ocean. This is a brand new podcast series exploring the impact of surf parks and more generally technology on the future of surfing. I could think of no better first guest than Guy Kawasaki. Guy is a legendary technology leader. He worked at Apple and notoriously turned down a role from Steve Jobs uh, in the heyday of Apple. He's written 15 books, including Art of the Start and Wise Guy. His TED Talk on innovation has more than 2 million views. His podcast, Remarkable People podcast, has uh, just amazing guests that have done great things. And so Guy knows a thing or two about big ideas and big movements. And that's what is happening in surf parks right now. We're joined on this episode by Mr. John Luff from Surf Park Central, which is the leading platform for connecting surf park enthusiasts, operators, and wave technology companies They are the main sponsor for this new show, and we just have a great conversation with Guy about surfing. Guy is an avid surfer. He got into surfing at the ripe old age of 62. He surfs with his family, and he has a lot to share about why business people should get excited about surfing and the promise that surf parks hold. So without further ado, I bring you this wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Guy Kawasaki. <laughs> so guy you were just saying what what was that quote but what's the right way to wax your board according to bob pearson the right way to wax your board is to get your wax on your board as fast as possible and go out into the water love that so there's no you know theory of you make x's and or you make circles or you put a base coat and then you make the x and then you make the circle because you want your board perfectly dimpled the theory, according to Bob Pearson, is put the wax on and go. Agility. That's what it's all about. <laughs> and and so you, we heard you were out there today. What were you riding today, Guy, if you can recap for us? I'm embarrassed to tell you. I was riding an 11-foot beater that I repainted and varnished. And I, I go to a break. Basically, there's, you know, 90% of us are kooks. And so... I know, and I've dinged many a board there. So now, whenever it's this kind of summertime, school's out, you know, shelter in place, so everybody's around Santa Cruz, or there's lots of people in the water. I take this old board out that's 11 foot, and I probably paid, I don't know, five, six hundred bucks years ago. 
and I just don't care, right? So, I I mean, it's like, I'm in my beater. You want to take out your brand new board and drop in on me or I drop in on you? It's not my problem. So... The right board is whatever one you're riding, right? Well, the right board is the one that you don't care if it gets dinged. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. And uh, I want to. I just wanted to start the conversation here and read off the quote that Mr. John Luff gave me about your uh, description of your keynote that was supposed to happen at the Surf Park Summit, which is uh, a conference for surf park experts, people developing surf parks around the world. And what you said, and I quote, is, I can talk about how to evangelize surfing and surf parks because while there are people who know evangelism better and people who know surfing better, there's no one who knows both better than you. (laughs) What a statement. It's incredible. Um, Maybe Kelly Slater might might debate that. Well, we'll have him okay. on next, and uh, and we'll get into it. But yeah, so what what's got you so fired up? Obviously, surfing in the ocean is is incredible, and we can all connect on that. But what about what about surf parks has you excited? Well, I think the the beauty of surf parks is the orderliness, twenty four by seven by three sixty five potential of it. It doesn't matter to me because I live near Santa Cruz, but you know, for many people, if you are in Austin, Texas, <laughs> you, know, you just can't go surfing, right? So I think it opens up the sport to many, many more people, which is kind of a, a mixed bag, right? So I mean, there might be many people who say, wow, you've democratized surfing. Thank you very much. So now there's more people on my break. I don't know. This, that's kind of a zero-sum game, right? The surfer's creed is kind of strange that way. It's I love surfing. I want my friends to love surfing, but we don't want anybody else to. We, you know, and you know, we're we're natives. We're locals. This is our break. Like you know, well, how do you decide who who owns a break? Because you live there longer. Well, we have a saying in Santa Cruz. You know, the definition of a Santa Cruz local is someone who's lived in Santa Cruz one week longer than you. It makes sense on the zero sum comment. I'd like to believe that if more people surfed, more people would be happier. And the world might be a little bit of a better place, but maybe that's a that's a, the optimist view. We can get Trump and Pence tandem surfing. <laughs> that would be exciting. I uh, I think people would pay to see that. Yeah. So when did you get into surfing? I started surfing about five years ago. I was sixty. My daughter really started getting into it, and I started off paddleboarding because I thought I don't know prone surfing was for young people or something. And then I started taking lessons from a guy who was also coaching my daughter. And he basically kept humiliating me, telling me that paddle surfing and paddle boarding is not really surfing. And so finally, I succumbed to his brainwashing, not to mention the, shall I say, negativity I felt in the water when I was on a paddleboard <laughs> among prone surfers. And so one day I, I said, okay, I guess I got a prone surf. And I, I actually, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I learned prone surfing by using a high-performance paddleboard. Because my theory was, like, even back then I could figure out, you know, a wave storm is just too hard to learn on in an eight-foot wave storm. So, you know, the physics are... The floatier the board and the longer the board, the easier to paddle, the more waves you catch, right? I mean, you know, I think what happens with many people who begin surfing, 
is they go to someone who's a buddy who is a good surfer. And the good surfer is shredding on some firewire. I think so. Most people start with way too small a board, too short a board. So I, I decided I would start with a high-performance paddleboard is kind of a low-performance surfboard, right? So I started with the Imagine Surfboard. Uh, it was you know, designed by Dave Kalama. I think it was like 9, 4, but 30 inches wide or something like that. And it probably had a 120-liter displacement. And so that's what I learned on. And people thought I was crazy. And then now I'm, you know... I'm gradually <laughs> reducing the volume. Hey, I'm a, I'm a fan of more volume as well, especially out here in uh, New York and New England where I surf. You need that extra, that extra couple liters of foam underneath <laughs> you. No judgment here. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I figured out, you know, one of the things I learned early is, so where I surf in Santa Cruz, there's East Cliff Drive, and people you know, sit up on the, the drive and they watch people. So I thought, I figured out that, you know, there's two times people see you when you're walking with your board and when you're in the water, right? And I think it's a pretty bright, hard line that when you're walking with your board, you want your board to be like really short and narrow and just the coolest looking short board because you're cool and you got this great looking board that, you know, Kelly Slater endorsed. But then when you're in the water and you can't catch anything, so you have to make a choice. You can either look cool when you're carrying your board walking to the beach, or you can look good in the water. Pick one. And, and that will determine which board you use. It's very simple. Makes sense. What, what do your kids choose? My daughter, literally, she uses a Jackson Dorian 411, 18-inch wide, you know, 20-liter my longboard's fin is bigger than her shortboard, I swear. So my other son uses a, well, <laughs> I just got the Firewire 7.6, right? It was 7.6 fish, 69 liters. And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, I can handle that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no way. So my son, one son uses the 7.6 Firewire. And then my other son, he uses a Pearson Arrow longboard and my other other son also uses a Pearson Arrow longboard so we're mostly Pearson Arrow that's great to hear and are, you guys surf together do you do they try to break off and do their own thing don't want to get caught with that or how does that work my daughter won't even be seen in the same break as her father so <laughs> she's like you know off I don't know where my other sons they surf with me and I, I have to tell you that Maybe my greatest joy in life is surfing with any combination of my kids. I don't know, you know, I guess you could play soccer with your kids. You could play basketball with your kids. You can't play tennis with, with four kids because, you know, you can't have five people on a court. You could play basketball, but I mean, at my age, I can't, you know, do the kind of running and jumping and stuff. So, you know, what other sport? Oh, I guess you could ski, but even skiing... You're not exactly talking to each other. I guess you could talk on the chair as you go up and down. But I don't know if a – bottom line is I don't know of a sport where, you know, your kids can be on a shorter board, you can be on a longer board, and you can all be on the same wave. That is a beautiful, beautiful feeling. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. We, I don't have kids yet with my wife, but uh, she surfs. 
and I could tell you that it, I can verify how fun that is to go out together. And that's kind of one of the visions we see for the the surf park angle is you take your family, and it's it's a little you know more controllable, safer, kind of the the future. You know, instead of soccer practice, go down to the wave pool. Yep. I believe it or not, I have never been to a wave pool. So, yeah, I mean, these venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, they just take 15 grand. And for them, that's, you know, that's in the ashtray of their Maybach. And they go and rent Kelly Slater's thing for a day. So I don't have 15 grand in my ashtray. John, we'll have to fix that. Yeah, now it's 50 to 65 for the day. It's 65 grand a day? Between 50 and 65, depending on what time of the year. Are you kidding me? And how many how many waves is that in a day? Is it 24 hours or I mean No, it's it's not 24 hours either. I mean, that's, you know, you take a group of 10, 12 guys, maybe each of you will get, you know, 10 to 12 waves. Well, I get 20 waves in Santa Cruz for free. I mean, I'll, you know. Oh my god. So so you get if you fall off a wave there, not only is it horrible yeah, you're looking at yeah, not only is 500 it, to 1000 bucks. Exactly. That's like every wave you catch you could buy a new board. Exactly. Wow. wow. This is not exactly democratizing surfing. No, that's the that's the far high end of the spectrum for sure. That's then you go to places like Urban Surf, which is the new one in Melbourne, which I'm not sure you've seen, but it's the one where it looks like a steampunk thing where the thing plunges and boom, right? So that's Surf Lakes. That's actually up in the north side, Queensland in Australia. So that's that's another tech. There, you're telling me there are two artificial wave parks in Melbourne? Well, in Australia. So there's one in Queensland. Yeah. So way up north. And that's the Surf Lakes one. That's like the Mad Max meets surf parks. Steam blowing off and yeah, dramatic plunger. And where's the other one? And the other one is in Melbourne. So the one in Melbourne is right next to the airport. So that one, they're pumping roughly five to 600 waves per hour. 500 waves per hour? Yeah. Is it a circular thing like the other one? So it's actually, it's, it's shaped like almost a baseball diamond. And so there's a pier that runs down the middle. And then there's effectively, it's almost like having two pools divided by a pier. And so on one side of the pool, lefts break across a reef. On the other side, rights break across the reef. So you might be sharing a session with 17 other surfers. What's making the wave? It's not a locomotive thing, right? Obviously. No, it's, it's actually uh, it's an electromechanically driven panel system. So if you could picture, line up 50 doors that are individually controlled by their own motors, oversized doors, really big doors, each one pushing water in sequence, Oh. which can be run in all kinds of different sequences. So take a keyboard on a piano and turn it up. And then you just play all these different sequences, which translates to all different types of waves, different peel angles. So like 17 people get in the water, a wave comes. Next 17 get in the water, a wave comes. That's how it is? So, so say you've got 18 surfers on each side of a pier. And on one side of the pier, the left's break. On the other side, right's break. So on the left side, all the doors push and, you know, off goes the first surfer. Eight seconds later, the next wave comes. Eight seconds later, the next wave comes. So on a call at eight-second frequency, 
a wave comes out the left and on the opposite side, out comes the right. And so you've got sets of call it 15 waves and then one minute of rest and then a set of 15 waves and a minute of rest. So you cycle a lot of people fast. And what if you fall? What does the guy behind you do who's eight seconds behind you and you're still, you know, falling or you hit one of the challenges on the head right there, which literally, <laughs> so they, they have advanced and then intermediate sessions. And the intermediate sessions give you a little more space between the surfers. The problem is, is there's no really good way to regulate right now between who's advanced and who's intermediate. That's self-regulated. If I want to sign up for advanced, I can. If you want to sign up for advanced, you can. Well, you end up with beginners signing up for advanced and say somebody does fall. Well, the next person's got to dodge the person because there's nobody stopping them from going. Well, that's like the real world. So. It is real world training right there. That's and right. is it longboard, shortboard, whatever you want? Or Everything. Boogie boards, hand planing. So can you say, okay, so like I'm the fifth person in line and I tell you, okay, I want, I'm on the right side. So I want like a two foot wave. I mean, can you specify what wave you get? So they haven't gotten to say like the menu of waves yet where you can pick within the session itself. But what they do have is if you hire it private in the morning or in the evening before they open to the public, then you get the menu. You want an airwave, we'll serve you airwaves. You want a you know, little two foot perfect Malibu peeler that goes all the way to the beach, we'll give you that too. And how long is it to the beach? So if you rode one all the way to the beach, it's like a close to the length of two football fields, you know, 200 yards. 600 feet yeah and it takes roughly yeah. 20 22 seconds to cover that distance i've had 600 foot rides in santa cruz so yeah but have you had 30 of them in uh two hours no well i don't think i could paddle out 30 times in two hours that's a yeah. whole different thing right so what you get to the beach you walk you get back in line and go again yeah well and you you actually paddle back out so you do get oh, the conditioning do. and wellness side of it so there, there's actually some pools. So Disney, Typhoon Lagoon, it typically runs like a water park wave pool. But in the mornings and in the evenings, you can rent it out private. So 1200 bucks for 100 waves. And where, what city is that in? That's in Orlando. And that exists now? That exists now. It's actually existed since the late 80s. What? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's been around for a long time. And, Wait, uh, you can go surfing in Orlando? You can go surf in Orlando. No. It's not yeah. quite the Kelly pool, though. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a smaller wave, right? I mean, a little bit more longboard. Yeah, it's much focused. smaller, and it's more of what I'd consider a novelty surfing experience than it is a world-class surf experience. So one of the ways I look at some of these pools is they're better than, from just a pure wave quality perspective, they're better than nature most of the time. Uh, you're going to have a better wave riding experience most of the time in these pools. I'm not talking about the cohesive surf experience where there's dolphins and nature and everything that comes <laughs> sharks, with that. Yeah, yeah sharks. Yeah, we, that, I'm sure that could be introduced, but that might be a little, uh, you know, not so PC. And where's the closest one to me other than the one that costs 50 grand a day? I'm in Northern California. I'm sure, guy, you could you could uh, position it in for less than fifty grand for your sessions. But the closest one today, if you were going to get on a plane, because that's what you'd have to do is get on a plane, oh, yeah. would be Waco, Texas, would be the closest to you today. There's several in various stages of construction, and there's there's one I'm actually working on in Palm Desert. So flying to Palm Springs, that's a little easier than Waco. 
better weather most of the time. I was going to ask about balance and not staying on your board, but figuring out you're, you're a busy guy. How do you balance getting wave time and getting surf time with all the things you're working on with Mercedes, with Canva, with your book, with your podcast? How do you approach that? Well, honestly, I'm at the tail end of my career, right? So it's it's not like I'm 30 and trying to suck up to be a product manager, manager, director working for a large Fortune 500 company. Now, in the pandemic in particular, everybody has a lot of free time. <laughs> Everybody's getting one or two hours back a day of commuting time. You know, mostly I have to do podcast editing and social media and email, which I can do anywhere. And as I said, I'm at the end of my career, so it's not like I have to impress somebody working 60 hours because who am I trying to impress? So I surfed three hours this morning, and if it were up to me and there weren't so many people in the afternoon, I would probably do two two-hour sessions a day. I just happen to love surfing. I, you know, I am so glad that I did not take up surfing when I was growing up in Hawaii because I don't think I would be where I am today if I had taken up surfing because <laughs> I love surfing. <laughs> Just <laughs> I take a break from surfing to work. That's incredible. Maybe it's a good transition to your book, to Wise Guy, because that's where you, I've uh, got it right here next to me. That's where you talk, you, you open the book with your Japanese heritage and growing up in Hawaii and you know, what kind of impact did that have on, obviously a major impact, you talk about this in the book, but specifically your, your thinking now, how you approach relationship with your kids, what impact did that have on you? Well, I mean, there was a tremendous impact because if you grow up in Hawaii, you never know a society that's not diverse, right? So, I mean, if I grew up in the deep south and I never saw a black or brown or yellow person till I was 18, that's one thing, but that's just not how Hawaii is. And, I, you know, people are particularly happy in Hawaii. I was definitely brought up with sort of kind of Japanese-American perspective about honor and respecting your elders and having an obligation because you're fortunate and, you know, all those kinds of things and the value of education. So that has definitely formed my life. And uh, similarly, uh, your your time in the jewelry business came up in the book, and you tied it a lot back to selling, and put a lot of emphasis on sales skills in the book. Selling in the jewelry business is hand to hand combat, right? It's it's also all about trust because oh yeah, at some level, maybe not so much in diamonds, but in gold, you just get the little stamp that says eighteen k. <laughs> You know, you know, you don't test every ring to see if it really is 18 karat, right? So that's one thing. And even in diamonds, when you buy a large parcel of 200, you know, five-pointers, I don't know if everybody looked at every five-pointer to see, yeah, you know, it's this color and this clarity. There's, there's not a few, you know, brown stones slipped in there in a packet of 350, you know, five-pointers. So, yeah, it was all about trust and is all about sales because you know the temptation in the jewelry business is you say okay so the 
gold is such and such an ounce per day and you know, such and such diamond cut clarity and, and color is this per, you know, carat. And so they can kind of throw your ring on a scale and say, well, there's 100 bucks worth of gold and 200 bucks worth of diamonds. I'll get, that's 300 bucks. I'll give you 10% profit. So that's, you know, 330 bucks. And then you say, but wait, what about the design? What about the quality? What about the labor? What about all that, right? That was hard sell. Yeah, those were the days. It, that lesson in selling in the jewelry business stayed with me for my whole life. It was really valuable training. It's really a lesson in sort of the unit economics, which obviously plays a big role in technology companies. So as, you know, as an investor, your time at Apple, your work now, I think that might play a big role. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. The jewelry business definitely taught me how to sell. There's no question about it. You know, I, I think even in tech, in a sense, life boils down to two functions. You either got to make it or you got to sell it. Everything else is bullshit. So if you can make it or sell it, you'll be okay. <laughs> uh, hence Apple, right? Steve Wozniak makes it. Steve Jobs sells it. That's all you really need. I did want to ask about some of your Apple time because uh, I think a lot of people would be really curious to hear about some of the war stories. You share a few in the book. You've quit Apple twice, turned down a job the third time. Could you talk us through your, your changing roles there over the years? And Yeah. So I started as a software evangelist. So my job was to convince people to write Mac software and hardware. And I left that job in order to start a Mac software company. And that did okay, but you know, nothing to retire on. And then I went back when Apple was supposed to die in 1995, and I was an Apple fellow and chief evangelist. My job was to preserve the Macintosh cult. I did that for a few years, and then I started another company, a venture capital company. You know, along the way, after that, Steve once caught me at a conference and offered me a job, and I laughed at him and <laughs> told him no. And if, if I had not quit the first time, not quit the second time, or not turned him down the third time, there would be the Guy Kawasaki personal wave park right now. And it would be preset to a right-hand, three-foot tube every time, 500 an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and Kelly Slater would be asking me if he could surf in my park. <laughs> it doesn't seem like from, this, from the book and from your, the way you tell the story, it, it seems like... You don't re regret anything, though. It doesn't seem like you do anything different. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Listen, when you leave Apple twice and turn down Steve a third time, and you, you, know, you do a rough calculation, that, that's got to be several hundred million. Believe me, <laughs> you do think about it. That's not something you... I mean, it's one thing to say, I, you know, I pulled up on that wave. I should have kept on that wave. It's another thing to cut Apple twice. <laughs> Maybe we could transition and talk a little bit more about uh, either your work at Canva and then your podcasts. So my work at Canva, I'm the chief evangelist of Canva, and Canva is an online graphic design service. And what it does is it enables people to make beautiful graphics extremely easy and extremely quickly. So... If you want any kind of social media presentation, flyer, poster, resume, anything like that, we have a template and hundreds of designs for each template. So I like to tell people that in the time it takes you to boot 
Photoshop, you can finish a graphic in Canva. Wow. That's incredible. And it, you'd been using their software or someone running your social page was using yeah. their software and they reached out. Yeah. And they discovered that I was using it and they reached out to me. And it's a good thing that I happened to see that tweet and the rest is history. Are you active with uh, other advisory roles or other startups or just, just Canva for now? I'm mostly active in Canva. I also help a company called Merge4. Believe it or not, Merge4 makes the best, do I have one on? The best socks in the world. I swear to God, they have like the best skateboard and surf design socks. Might not do this justice, but you know, this is a Merge4 sock. <laughs> they, they have the endless summer design. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's incredible. The best sock. Basically, I help Canva. I help Merge for Mercedes-Benz brand ambassador. That more or less means that I get paid to drive a Mercedes for free and, uh, you know, something like that. And, and then this podcast. My podcast is called Remarkable People, and I interview remarkable people, duh. Remarkable people like Jane Goodall, Margaret Atwood, uh, Andrew Yang. Stephen Wolfram, physicist, and Sean Thompson from South Africa, and Chris Burdish from South Africa. Chris Burdish won Mavericks in 2010, I think, and he also was the guy who, uh, about a year ago, paddled across the Atlantic Ocean on a, on a SUP. So, yeah, that, nobody has done that ever. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, I heard the Sean Thompson episode. It was awesome to hear and get into some of his story a bit. The Gary V episode was fun as well. Yeah. You know, Sean Thompson, I'll tell you how lousy a surfer I was when I first met him because I had, you know, didn't surf. He took me out and like not even Sean Thompson could get me to stand on a board. I mean, that's how <laughs> pathetic I was. <laughs> I've gotten better. I can, I can imagine, yeah, and it sounds like you're loving it, and it's so exciting. You can get out there with your family and, and all that. Maybe as a way to close up and bring it home, do you have uh, anything you'd like to talk about or share with uh, sort of the listeners here or even a positive message you'd like to kind of get across to everyone? Well, you know, I, I just think that I can't wait to try one of these parks. I hope I don't embarrass myself too much. When you start talking about 500 waves per hour, I mean, that's going to expand the surfing business. And I know a lot of surfers are going to hear that and say, you know, that's the last thing in the world we want it to happen, right? I think it's, it's good. I mean, we've got to keep the industry alive, right? So what you're telling me, you want as few surfers in the water as possible. So you want the business to die and it's just you and your longboard or you and your shortboard and that's it. So that's one negative way. But the other thing is, you know, just this... Any surfer can tell you the sheer joy of surfing. And wouldn't you want more people to have that sheer joy? I mean, it is the most joy you can have legally in the world. I don't know any other way. I think that's a great way to bring it home. That's an awesome message. Thank you for your time for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thanks. This show is powered by surfparkcentral.com, which is the leading platform for connecting surf park operators and developers with wave technology companies, suppliers, and investors. If you're a consumer, an enthusiast looking to break into the surf park industry, you can check out surfparkcentral.com slash insiders 
to learn more about our exclusive program for events, conferences, and exclusive content to help you learn about the growing industry and the key players. Check it out, surfparkcentral.com. Thanks for listening, guys. This is Chris Klusner again, just with a few last-minute thoughts. Please do check out our website, beyondoceanpodcast.com, to subscribe to our newsletter and get exclusive updates from your local surf parks and out-of-ocean surfing experiences near you. You can also learn more about our sponsors and the incredible guests we host on the show You can also access show notes and links. Anything that's covered in the podcast will be featured on the website. Again, it's beyondoceanpodcast.com. Check it out.